Well, good morning. My name is Adam. I'm the teaching pastor here, and uh, hopefully you can tell that I'm not Mike. Um, I'm filling in for Mike today, uh, who is recovered, recovering, recovered from COVID. He tested negative a couple of days ago, but he's staying away just out of an abundance of caution. He's feeling a lot better. Uh, but I'm here today to conclude our series called What If?, where we've just walked through three questions of what if we took seriously or more seriously these things that Scripture invites us to do, these things that Jesus invites us to do? What if we discipled? What if we took more seriously the call in our lives to disciple, to walk alongside somebody and in their spiritual journey who's a little bit behind us and say, hey, you be willing to follow my example as I follow the example of Christ and to look for somebody that's ahead of you on their spiritual journey and learn from them And if together we took seriously living life together, discipleship, things would change. Our community would change. Our world would change. What if we discipled? And last week we talked about what if we served? What if we showed up to situations trusting that God can use the little bit that we have in our hands and make it something incredible if we show up and we hand over what we have for God's glory? Something unbelievable can happen when we walk behind God and trust that his strength is sufficient and that he's made us to make a significant difference in the world around us. And he's uniquely created us to serve in a specific way. What if we served? We're willing to show up and pour out. And today, we're talking about what if we prayed? And what if we took more seriously the role of prayer? If we submitted our lives and our worries and our concerns over to God, if we spent every day anchoring our lives on who's actually in control of everything that's going on and trusting that he'll lead us well, that he'll see us through. What if we prayed? Colossians 4, 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. And now it's important as we start out to just uh, clear up a couple things because there can be some misconceptions about prayer. Um, One, sometimes we pray as if we're giving God instructions rather than asking for his instructions. So God, if you could just make these the right lottery numbers, then I will be the most generous person you've ever seen in your whole life, your whole eternity, whatever. I'm going to blow you away with how much of the money that you give me when I get the lottery numbers. It's going to be crazy. So sometimes we instruct God how to fix our lives. Sometimes we pray as if we're expecting our will to be done in heaven rather than asking for God's will to be done on earth. God, make this happen for me for eternity because I know best. And if you listen to me, things are going to go great. Trust me, it's going to be awesome. Other times we pray as if we aren't sure whether or not God's even listening. And if he is listening, whether or not he cares to hear from us. And I'm sure everybody's had a moment or two like that where you're praying and you're just like, does this even do anything? And today... We want to center around this reality that because of what Jesus has done for us, we have a Father in heaven who wants to hear from us and who has a plan for us and a future for us. Not who's going to make everything happen according to the way that we see it, but who will hopefully help us see things the way that he would have it happen in the world. 
In an article called Five Reasons We Don't Pray, Ron Kincaid writes that one of the five is that we don't recognize that God is our only hope. And he says this, we embrace the misguided notion that we can handle most uh, problems and we need God only in emergencies. We try everyone and everything else before admitting that God is our only hope. It's the old saying, well, the only thing we have left is prayer. The only thing you have left is to talk to the creator and sustainer of life, the all-sovereign king of the universe, the one who sent his son from heaven to earth to die for us to be a perfect example of what life is and who overcame death. The only thing we have left is to talk to that God in the midst of whatever's happening in our life. God is our only hope and he's our first resort. And so what if we prayed? How would life look different? What would change about the way that we look at the things that seem to outnumber us, the things that seem too big for us, the scale is too enormous? How would things change? What would we see that was different? And so we're going to look at a story today from 2 Kings chapter 6. It might be a new story to you. It might be an old familiar story from Bible school. uh, But we're going to look at it together because it's one of those crazy Old Testament stories. That seems far off. We're going to look at, look at it and see if it changes the way that we think about prayer. Second Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And we're going to go through verse 23. Um, <clears throat> now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elijah warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. Now this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded them, tell me which of you, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture them, capture him. And the report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. And they went by night and they surrounded the city. And so we're going to hit pause on the story just for a second there, just to take stock of what's happening. Good guy Elisha is the prophet of God that is protecting Israel, and he's making sure that their troops don't go into the traps that uh, the king of Aram has set up. And every time that Israel skirts this plan, the king of Aram comes up with another plan. He's like, there's no chance that this plan is going to fail because I'm pretty smart. This is going to be the thing that gets them. And every time... Elisha warns them, and the Israelite army skirts it, and they're like, failed again. And so every time it's just this, you will never, this won't fail, it's going to be perfect, and then it fails. And this this won't fail, it'll be perfect, and then it fails, and the king of Aram is mad about that. I mean, you can imagine how frustrating that would be because he's a strategic thinker, he's got this plan, he's got this thing going on, it'll be this city, it'll be this attack, whatever. Nope. Like, Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football, they just keep missing every time. And he gets mad and he thinks that there's a spy on the inside. And he says, 
Who's telling him? Because the only way this is happening is if somebody is telling my great plans to this weaker army, because we should have taken them by now. Like, no, they have this guy, Elisha. And so they're going to send a special forces unit by night to the city where Elisha is to capture and take him. And this is where we pick up on the story. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, so when Elisha's servant got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. So Elijah's servant gets up early, setting a little breakfast out on the table. He's got his cup of coffee. He's chilling, reading the newspaper, looks out the window, and there's an army around the city. They're completely surrounded, and he's thinking, I now know of this problem and this force that's coming to take my master, Elijah, who is the one that's keeping this army from overtaking Israel, and I see this significant force in front of me. I don't know what you would have said out loud in that moment, but it may have been some more choice words than, oh, my Lord, what shall we do? <laughs> like, there is a problem out the window, a significant problem. They seem completely outnumbered because they're in a city, Dothan, which is uh, 10 to 15 miles north of the capital city. So all the forces weren't there and they were, they were outnumbered. And so he's like, Ugh. and this happens to us, right? I mean, hopefully a foreign army is not surrounding your house in the middle of the night, but a problem wakes you up in the middle of the night because it feels too big. And that anxiety sets in. Or you wake up in the morning and you remember that conversation. And you don't know what's going to happen with that thing. Or you look at the circumstances that you're about to head into at work. And everything seems overwhelming. And you're like, oh, Lord, what will I do today to make it through today? Because this seems like too much. It is overwhelming the forces, the enemies, the problem that's against me. You're not going to wake up to the Arameans surrounding your city, but you are going to wake up to something that makes you anxious, to something that makes you worried, to something that feels too big for you to overcome, that seems outside of your grasp, your capability. But the story doesn't stop right there with the city being surrounded and Elisha getting captured we continue on. Verse 16, Elisha, who is awake now, clearly, because the servant has dropped his coffee and spilled breakfast everywhere, and is like, yo, this is a bad situation that we're in. Elisha is now awake, and he says, what are you worried about? Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Can you imagine hearing that? And seeing outside and counting all the enemies and counting the forces that you think that you have on your side and being like, not great at math, but I think you're wrong. But Elisha doesn't even break a sweat. He's like, you have to remember who's on our side. Who is with us versus who's against us. And so in verse 17, it says that Elisha prayed that the servant's eyes would be opened. 
And God did that. And the servant saw something that he couldn't even have imagined. The hills were full of chariots and horses of fire. And it looked like something out of a sci-fi movie. And it was the army of God who was also on the side of the Israelites. And he, the servant, could finally see that the scale of the problem that I was seeing is nothing in comparison to the scale of the God who's on my side. And so every morning when you wake up and you feel outnumbered, you can remember that the problem that you're looking at is nothing in comparison to the size of the God who's on your side. Because through Christ, he's brought us into his family and invited us to take part in his advancing kingdom. And he wins at the end of the day. And so the servant sees, oh no, wait, we are actually good. And what happens next gets even crazier, even more amazing. As the Aramean army begins to come at them, Elisha prays that God would blind them. And God does blind them. But this is not like a total black, dark blindness as if you were to close your eyes or blindfold yourself. It is a confusing blindness where this enemy army doesn't see things that are there and sees things that aren't there and they get completely confused and it's like they don't know what's happening and they can't figure out left from right, up from down, whatever, and they're trying to to move forward and they can't. And so Elisha goes out and he's like, hey guys, follow me. And so this army that is now blinded, confused and all that, who's come to capture and kill Elijah is now being led by Elijah, and Elijah leads them that 10 or 15 miles down into the Samaria, the capital city of Israel, where they're now going to be outnumbered. And he takes them right through the gates and into the middle of the city where they're at a completely vulnerable spot. And the king of Israel is like, awesome work, Elisha. We're going to kill all these people now. And Elisha is like, no. And he asked them to do what is this unbelievable and unnatural thing. He tells them to prepare a feast for these enemies. To roll out the best stuff. Make your finest dishes. We're going to have a feast with these who were our enemies. They're going to sit here and we're going to dine together. And from that point on, look at the last sentence. It says, they stopped raiding Israel's territory. God does with our problems something that confounds our expectation, that defies our version of strategy, and that ends up more successful than we could have ever asked or imagined. Over and over again, we see in Scripture that His ways are better than our ways, and the things that we're prone to do would lead to more destruction, and the things that He wants to do will lead to more redemption and restoration. They say, we have this force now surrounded that was coming to capture our guy Elijah. Let's kill them because they're our enemies. And God says, no. Make a feast for them. And that'll stop this conflict. And so what if your prayers were different? What if our prayers, my prayers, what if my prayers asked God to remind me of who he is? 
Remember the servant? He got up and looked out the window and he was overwhelmed because the army that was around them and they were surrounded. When you got up in your morning, when you get up in the morning, you look out and you think about your day. Do you feel that way sometimes? Surrounded, overwhelmed, overcome. There's too much, too much brokenness, too much heaviness in the world. But look at what Elijah says. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. God, open our eyes that we might see that you're on our side. Not that you would take away the problem in the way that we would hope that you would take away the problem, but that you'll see us through even these most difficult circumstances. That even though we can't reconcile how we'll get from point A to point B, which we see as a solution, you have a way because you're bigger than this enormous thing that's staring me in the face. And I'll trust and I'll follow. There's a word in the notes that one of the things that changes when our prayer changes is prayer changes our perspective. When we ask God to help us see him, it changes our perspective. There's a story that says that one teacher tells about a kindergarten class going to a fire station for a tour and some instruction for fire safety. Um, And the fireman was explaining what to do in case of a fire. And he said, you first, you go to the door and you feel the door to see if it's hot. And then he said, and then you fall to your knees. And does anyone know what you ought to do when you fall to your knees? And one of the students chimed in and he said, sure, you start praying that God gets you out of that mess. (laughs) The first resort in problems that seem overwhelming is to go to God to get you out of that mess. Because life is bigger than what we can solve sometimes, if not often. But the God who's calling us forward is bigger than the things that are bigger than our capabilities. And we need to see God for who he is because he'll see us through. John Eldridge who's a Christian author, says this, if we're really to believe that God wanted, if we were really to believe that God wanted to hear from us in prayer, it would be like making friends on the first day of school with the biggest kid in class and things would start looking up. Look at King Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8.22. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth below. So hear this, this week, maybe today, maybe right now, you're going to face something that feels bigger than you. But when you ask God for perspective, you'll realize that whatever it is, is not bigger than God. It is not bigger than God. And so what if our prayers were different? What if our prayers, my prayers, what if my prayers asked God to remind me of who I am? Who I am because of what God has done for us. Verse 20, Elijah prays that the Aramean Aramean army's eyes are opened and that they would see the reality of their situation. Um, The second word that gets changed is not only our perspective, but our attitude Uh, gets changed. If you want your prayers to be effective with God, ask him to do with you 
what he wants to do with you. Ask him to help you see the reality of who you are. Look at what David prayed in Psalm 26.2. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Psalm 139.23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. The biggest lie we tell ourselves is that we can hide from God. And it started all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve when they tried to hide in the bushes that God created. They thought that they could hide their sinfulness from the one who created them. And we still, in our shame, try to hide from God and mask our anxious thoughts and mask our worried minds. And what he's really saying is, no, I see you and I still choose you. Because I will make you into something as you trust and follow me. I see your anxieties. I see your worries. I see your doubts. I see your problems. I see your weakness. I see all of that. And I still choose you because you and my hands can help change the world. And so our prayer needs to be, God, today. Make me even more into the person that you would have me be. Not necessarily the person that I desire to be, but the person that lines up most closely with your will, the person I'm created to be. Help me become who you want me to be. And here's one more. What if my prayers asked God to remind me of who others are? Verses 21 and 22, the king of Israel had in his possession a strong force when this enemy army entered the capital city and was standing in the middle of their capital city. The army that had been trying to overtake them, the army that had been trying to destroy them, was now standing confused and weak and vulnerable. And the king wanted to humiliate them kill them, take them out, eliminate this problem in the way that he saw fit, in the way that was conventional wisdom. But God said no. God said those enemies can become friends. And so the last thing that might change is our actions. Our prayers should change the way that we behave in the world. Look at Matthew 5, 43 through 48. We're going to read it in the message version. You can compare it against the CSB or the NIV later, but it gives new perspective on to this, uh, this passage. It says this, Jesus is talking. You're familiar with the old written law. <clears throat> Love your friend and its unwritten companion. Hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. And for, for then, you're working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. And this is what God does. He gives us his best, the sun to warm the rain, to nourish, to everyone, regardless, good and bad, the nice and the nasty. If you... If all you do is love the lovable, 
Do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way that God lives towards you. Our natural instinct is to hate our enemies, to look at the other and explain away all the ways that they're less than us and they deserve our hate. But Jesus says, those who persecute you, those who hate you, they deserve your best because that is the place for miraculous restoration for reconciliation that seems unnatural, for reconciliation that seems not even in the world of possibilities. Love your enemies. You are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Live like it. You don't have to prove yourselves through vendettas or through rage or through hate. You can be bigger than that because you're part of a kingdom that's bigger than that. And so we behave differently in the world. We see others as also God created, as also lovable, as also redeemable because we've been redeemed and we know ourselves. Howard Hendricks wrote this story. He says, years ago in a church in Dallas, we're having trouble finding a teacher for the junior high boys class. If you've ever served in student ministry, you get that. The list of prospects had uh, only one name. And when they told me who it was, they said, you've got to be kidding me. And you see this story developing of man's ways of thinking versus God's ways of thinking. But I couldn't have been more wrong about this young man. He took the class and he revolutionized it. Hendricks said that he wanted, he was so impressed, he wanted uh, to invite him by name, or to invite him to his home for lunch and ask him the secrets of his success And this young man pulled out a little black book, and on each page he had a small picture of each of the boys. And none of the boys' names were comments like having trouble in math or comes to church against parents' wishes or would like to be a missionary someday but doesn't think he has what it takes. And the secret, the teacher said, was I pray over those pages every day. And I can hardly wait to come to church each Sunday and see what God's been doing in their lives. Our ways of thinking invite us to see the perspective, the situation as it is. God's ways of thinking asks us to see it how it could be. When he shows up, when he walks alongside us, when he brings that restoration, when he brings that miracle of new life and salvation, we get to see change. And so is that our prayer? God, help us to follow you well. We want desperately to come in after you've been working and see what you've been up to so that we can tell the story of a God who's still advancing in a kingdom that is still advancing, one of love and peace and restoration and hope and joy, no matter the circumstance. Change, God, my perspective, my attitude, and my actions. E. Stanley Jones said, prayer is surrender. 
Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from a boat and I catch hold of the shore and I pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will. It's aligning my will with the will of God. That's why every week we take time to spend time in prayer, examining our lives through communion, holding our lives up against the life of Christ and seeing where's their discrepancy, where's their change that needs to happen. God, continue to remake me. I'm so thankful for your sacrifice on the cross.